Welcome to podcast number 84 of My Favorite Detective Stores. Today's date is January 14th, 2020, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. My guest today is Michelle Stewart. Ms. Stewart is a licensed private investigator in the state of Arizona with 20 years of experience specializing in the areas of financial, open source investigations, corporate investigations, intelligence, and counterintelligence. She started her investigative career as an economic fraud investigator. Ms. Stewart is an adjunct professor with the University of Virginia and an instructor at Quantico for multi-country training programs. She provides seminars on her specialized investigative techniques and open source investigations. Over the past years, she has provided presentations and private training to both federal and state levels of law enforcement agencies and military intelligence throughout the United States, including attendees of the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Marshals, FBI, Department of Justice, Border Patrol, Indian Tribal Nations, and local law enforcement agencies throughout the country. She has written and published several articles pertaining to her investigative methods in various investigative publications and journals, and is a featured author with her own column concerning internet profiling and open source investigations titled Internet FYI in PI Magazine. It is my pleasure to introduce Michelle Stewart. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. My Favorite Detective Stories features successful private investigators. They offer insights into their careers and advice to those just starting out or to those who are struggling. You will learn from the best. Of course, we cannot finish the show without asking them to share their favorite detective story. On alternating weeks, you will hear from crime fiction writers who discuss their latest books and what makes their fictional detectives tick. Throughout my investigative career spanning five decades, I cannot think of a time that I didn't have a good crime novel on my coffee table or bedstand. We will also talk about their favorite authors as well. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my recently published books for private investigators. How to launch your private investigation business. How to market your private investigation business. And how to boost your private investigation business. It also appears as a three-book set in How to Rocket Your Private Investigation Business, the complete series. All can be found at your favorite online retailers in ebook or softcover. Did you know that I also coach private investigators how to survive and thrive in business? Visit my website at www.thepicoach.com. That is thepicoach.com to learn more. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I appreciate you offering me to be here. Well, I've been wanting to talk to you for some time now, and I know you've been very, very busy. So uh, how are things out there in uh, Arizona these days? Actually, it is raining for the last few days. It's unbelievable because we don't usually get this overcast and continual downfall of rain, but for the last four or five days, it's been raining. Oh, man. I can just imagine people are getting ready to jump off the, the culvert bridges. I mean, it's just... <laughs> oh, no. We actually enjoy it. We never get rain like this. So oh, okay. I sit in my Arizona room with all the windows open and, and listen to the rain. Sweet. Now, I'm here in um, western Pennsylvania as we record today on December 27th. I'm visiting my in-laws in western Pennsylvania. That's something that we do every Every year between Christmas and New Year's. And uh, so we're recording this uh, using a, a telephone connection as opposed to uh, internet connection as opposed to Skype. So uh, it's plan C. So I hope my listeners understand that we're, it's more important that we get the content than that it sounds like a uh, Academy Award winning um, audio. Okay? <laughs> sounds good to me. 
So, uh, Michelle, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, how you got started, and why you decided to become a private investigator, and, and what your original idea looked like. Um, you know, it's actually kind of a funny story. Originally, when I was in my very, very early 20s, I wanted to be a police officer. And at the time, I was looking around at different agencies here in Arizona, which at, would have been probably around Phoenix, Tempe, Mesa, Gilbert, Chandler. And um, I started looking at the ones that I thought would fit kind of my personality a little bit more. I grew up in the Midwest, smaller towns. So I didn't think Phoenix would probably be my fit. But at that time, when I was looking at it, um, I would actually went out to, friend, uh, out to dinner with some friends. And uh, it's when I actually met my, well, he's my ex-husband, but my husband at the time. And he was a Phoenix police officer. And so once we got serious, you know, we talked it over and he really didn't want me to be a police officer and, you know, two people in the same family. So I kind of put it on the back burner. And and um, I was in property management at the time. And um, these uh, agents actually had come in and asked if they could use my office to um, do a surveillance on one of our tenants that they believe was doing some drug dealing. And so after about three days, the one gentleman came in that I actually became very good friends with. And he came in and said that they were going to shut it down because they didn't get any information. And I asked him, what is it that he needed? And we had all fake information. The individual who was living in one of our units had provided fake data. Um, and he had been there a while before I even started working there. And um, so they went to lunch. And I was like, these guys didn't even do anything, thinking I knew so much more than they did at the age of 22 or 23, whatever I was. And mm -hmm. I ended up securing uh, pretty much everything they needed. I saw an individual walking out of the unit and I went up to him and I just started pre-checking him, I guess social engineering him. And um, they came back after lunch. I had everybody's names. I had where they worked. I had everybody's vehicles, their plate numbers, their VIN numbers. Um, and back then it was pagers. I had pager numbers from the guy who was running dope from Mexico into Arizona. And um, they just kind of stared at me and they didn't really say anything. So I thought I had kind of made them mad. But the next day he came back and he goes, hey, do you want a job? And that's actually my entire background of getting employed. And I ended up getting employed from a company out in New Jersey, and we did financial investigation. And it was back in the days of a lot of uh, savings loans going into receivership. So I did that for about seven years and just uh, did research for them. And then I decided to create my own agency. And so, well, and just can you back up a little bit and to tell me a little bit more about uh, that, that type of business that you were doing for them in the re receivership work? I didn't quite oh, understand yeah. that. So Back in the very early 90s, um, if you remember, there was a lot of savings and loans that were going into receivership. So back then we had the FDIC and we had the RC. And the Resolution Trust Corporation at that time was failing. And they were selling most of their loans to the FDIC, pennies to the dollar. So what the company I did would do is um, a lot of times they would secure a, a, an environment like a bank institution. Um, and then whomever we were working for, whichever FBIC office we were working for, because there were several obviously throughout the country, um, then they would give us portfolios. And we would take those portfolios and work them and, and try to find where the money was. And unfortunately, back in those days, John, I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but we didn't have interbranch banking. And um, there were some that was doing it, but most of them did. So if you were doing a financial investigation, we had huge Thomas directories and it had every single bank, every single phone number and you would actually during the investigation have to determine which location the suspect or the subject of the investigation maintained their money at. And back in those days there was a lot of pretexting obviously and sure. so the Graham Flyley Act was passed. But it was very difficult to do financial investigations in the sense that you know you had to find specifically the location of where the money was held. And um, so when we would do that, another problem that we had back in those days is there was a lot 
lot of junk bond sales that were happening. And we also had hand- handshake deals. So you would have a lot of uh, directors from different banks or uh, let's say bank managers or whoever, and they would come in with a good old boy, you know, kind of network where there was a handshake and, you know, you walk out with a, let's say $100,000 and, you know, under the, the guise of, you know, my word, my word. So it was, huh. it was a very cool time in doing financial investigation. Wow. That's yeah. why I'm glad. I'm, that's why I'm glad I didn't understand the beast a little bit. And I'm glad you took a few seconds to explore that with me. And certainly I'm glad that you did. Uh, so now uh, you decided after doing that, you decided to go out on your own. So tell me more about that. Well, and then it was in 96 or 97. Gosh, I probably, probably should look. I think it was 97. Um, I started to want to do my own thing. I didn't want to work for another company. And um, financial investigations at that point had gotten more difficult in the sense because the Graham Lee Wiley Act, where you couldn't use any type of pretext or pretense uh, to try to identify anybody's financial information, personally identifiable information. So I, um, I started my own company and I did a little bit still of some financial information research, but I started moving into different venues. Um, of investigation. Some of it was domestic. Um, some of it was uh, more so like uh, public record research. And then in the early 90s, mid-90s, is really when the internet started coming around. Now, the internet's been around a lot longer than that. But as an investigative tool, that's when it really started surfacing. And honestly, I just started watching it. And I started watching how the sites were creating data and where they were trying to hold the data. And back in those days, I was able to, you know, try to find the individuals behind a website and I would just call them. And it wasn't this, you know, I, almost like a pretentious thing. It wasn't where everybody was concerned about everything or nobody wanted anybody to steal their data or the way they were getting it. And people were more open to tell you where they were pulling information. Mm-hmm. And so I just learned. I just watched and I learned. And it just it's weird, John, because there's really not a specific date that my world changed from public record research or asset investigation to me training. It just kind of all kind of flowed together because as technology changed, my, my I guess, interest changed and my ability changed. And so I kind of just smoothly integrated into going into specializing in open source intelligence. So mm. yeah, I started teaching it probably, I want to say, oh my gosh, 18 years ago, I think is really when I started tra- uh, training the, the open source stuff. So just, just by way of background a little bit for myself, I my first job after I left the police department was a company called Equifax. <laughs> and I got to work with them while they were collecting data, you know, from actual uh, hard copy paper. And, oh, yeah. uh, and they were putting information into uh, note cards and into uh, uh, data sheets that were uh, mimeographed and sent around to the different uh, uh, offices. Uh, a Coles directory helped oh, me, yeah. you know, helped me with my, who my na- who the neighbors were and yeah. what, what their telephone numbers were. But uh, I also had to spend a lot of time in county records and uh, prothonotary offices. I can't even say the word right these days, but or you know, uh, wills and probates and <clears throat> getting discharge, um, uh, military discharge records and whatnot. And for me, the 70s gave me the background or the depth to which then as things start to change in the 80s and, and become more into the 90s and go more digital, I knew where the original aggregation was coming from. And I understood that, you know, where a lot of these uh, data providers were, were pulling their data from. And I understood them because I worked them myself with all their strengths and with all their frailties. So I understood this, this beast as well going oh, yeah. in. 
they have a microfilm and microfish days. Yes. Oh, still. I mean, I, I still, I, I worked a case four months ago where I had to do microfilm at the state library. So, I yeah. mean, it, you, know, you know, no fun, but, uh, you know, still, uh, at least I know what the price of uh, a pound of hamburger was in 1994. So, so anyway. Yeah. Well, and the thing that's concerning, because you and I both kind of grew up in that generation, is with it going digital and going paperless, um, there's records that are just absolutely missing. And I actually had that happen several years ago where it was a background investigation and um, the individual that we were looking at, uh, when we went and did all the online searching and everything, we found zero information. And the client was adamant that this individual had a criminal record. So I ended up calling down to the county and speaking directly to one of the girls that's working there. And she goes, well, let me try to pull it up on my computer. And she says, well, I don't have anything, nothing showing. And so I drove down to the courthouse and I said, do you guys still have anything, paper, microfilm, microfish? And she goes, yeah, we haven't destroyed it yet. And sure enough, there it was. There was a criminal record. They just yeah. weren't, you know, things. That's my concern a lot of times is that all of the stuff that it's on into a digital mode is there's a human error involved because they have to be scanned. Mm-hmm. And so we learn information. We're getting to some circumstances where uh, now uh, governmental agencies are purging digital records yeah. more than more than ten years old. Um, they in our state, uh, the fine the nutmeg state, uh, Connecticut. Uh, I have um, records room um, supervisors telling me with relish that they're not responsible to keep records past ten years. Yeah, and, and I'm like, okay. Um, Okay, <laughs> and now I realize that uh, where that might have been paper, now they're not keeping the paper, and now they're uh, not keeping digital records past ten years in some in some police department. Exactly, and, and again, uh, look at that digital error, that human error. We're looking at even typing errors. You might have an individual such as myself, you know, Michelle with one L, but then you mm-hmm. have somebody entering it, Michelle double L, and or, so or uh, you know, last name that happens. Last name with an E W instead of a U A, you know. Yeah. So, right. Oh yeah. Oh God, yeah. So they they could they could mess up your name four different ways. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm often called John Honda. <laughs> 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 thanks, thanks to thanks to spell check, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so you you started. I, I just had to go back into the seventies, bring you back into the into your world now, where you, you changed back into now uh, uh, late uh, mid nineties, going into the turn of the century. It's amazing. We're now talking about the turn of the century. I know, know. D- during our lifetime. So tell me about how your business changed and what you started to do then. Well, when I started noticing technology changing, um, I started just kind of putting myself more into it because I remember, and it's pretty funny, if I look back before I even got to investigation, uh, the job that I was doing at the time where the, the agents had walked in, I was in property management, and I'll never forget my first day on the job where um, my boss had walked in and asked me to turn on the computer and enter information in the rent roll, and I didn't even know how to turn a computer on. I still remember that, thinking, oh my God, because I had lied to get the job in the sense that, not lied, they'd asked me how much computer I had. I embellished my computer experience. We laugh at it now because, you know, I told them immediately um, once I got the job. But I didn't even know how to turn on that computer. And then mm. after reading that, watching technology, you know, start progress, I really, you know, decided I, I needed to put forth and, and try to learn and try to stay on top of it as much possible because you could really see how things were changing. You could see, as me and you were talking about, you know, the, the digital age on, on just the records and how we can't go back in and look at paperwork anymore because they are purging the paperwork. Right. Um, and so I, I 
I really started enjoying it. And I loved the ability of digging, but I loved the, the digital dig. And um, during that time frame, you have to remember too, now we're going into the later 90s, early 2000s. And then all of a sudden, you know, social media starts popping. And mm-hmm. um, so I really started watching how that started attempting. And, and at that time, I started working with law enforcement more uh, regularly. And we were looking at, uh, you know, predators and how they were using my face at the time. And, um, and I just, you know, I really just flourished in that field. And I didn't enjoy surveillances. I know a lot of people, you know, probably do. We all have our niche. But I just, I didn't like that kind of stuff. I really enjoyed the dig, the digital digging. And that's really where I just set forth and, and went, you know, to the career that I'm into now. Well, it's, it's you know, some is, uh, you know, me, I, I would rather knock on a door than do, yeah. do the analytic work that you're talking about. Uh, my, my, I'm better on the doorstep than I am on the keyboard. And don't call me a dinosaur, just call me a different skill set because both are needed, Absolutely. you know, in, in investigation. Um, but uh, I, I think I, I know enough to be dangerous at the keyboard because I know where, from whence that data came from, how it was aggregated many, many years ago. And I know what I'm looking for so I can sometimes say, ah, it doesn't look like, let's try this, let's try that. And then, you know, yeah. then we come up, okay. But um, to do what you do, I, I can see that you are now matching skill sets with your interests. And as the uh, as the uh, world continues to progress digitally and with the advent of social media, and the uh, and the intersection of social media with uh, data collection, I guess that's where you really start to flourish. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, you know, and one thing I will point out real quick too is what you did with the door knocking and how comfortable you feel. Um, when I do my classes and I train my classes, I always say that specifically too. This isn't an all-around investigation. When you're doing an online investigation, that open source intelligence investigation, you still have to have human intelligence involved. Both of them have to work together. If you're really going to do a thorough case, you have to have the ability to do both that. And not me as an individual. Let's say you and I were working a case together. You're better at the door. I'm better at the computer. But that human intelligence is still such a huge piece of investigation. And and me knowing what you do and you knowing what I do makes one plus one equals three as opposed to very cut and dry. You do this. You ship me this. I do this. You don't know how that impacts on the overall investigation. But by us talking together and you appreciating what I do and I appreciating what you do, you know, then then we're able to look at the uh, jigsaw puzzle with four, uh, two sets of eyes, four eyes, Absolutely. and then uh, be able to fill out and, and see, the, see the issue, whereas if we ship you or if it was just me, we may not be able to do it as well. So yeah, I oh, agree I with agree. you. And it's the same as with, because I get asked a lot about, you know, the companies that do um, you know, the online searching for social media and, you know, how I feel about them and do I, you know, suggest any of which I'm not going to say any names because I don't like to promote really mm-hmm. anything. I think it take away from me as an investigator in the sense of because people think, all right, well, if you like this, I need to jump on that bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but those agencies, those companies that provide that type of data is good. I mean, absolutely beneficial, but I still have a problem that you remove that human element because right. we realize as we're digging that something all of a sudden, especially a username, if I'm looking at an individual and they have social media and one little thing changes on their username, I can catch it visually. I can catch that and say, well, that's the same person, right? Well, sometimes yeah. that algorithm, those computer-based systems that are running those patterns might not be that. And mm-hmm. so I, that's why I think it's very important with your, your skill set, my skill set, and, and that, you know, the, the people that have been around as long as I have and you have, um, they understand that they still need to do that because there's so many investigators that are coming out now 
that will come through my trainings or stuff and, and they're younger and they're way younger and they focus everything on the computer. And I always tell them, you have to make sure that you get that other that other experience behind you too. You have to be able to interview skillfully. You have to understand that, you know, you have to look at the data differently than just what's showing up on the internet. It's kind of like when we were growing up, my daddy would always say, you know, man, just because you read it doesn't mean it's true, right? Mm-hmm. And I think as investigators, especially when we're using the internet um, as much as we do, we have to remember that. And because something could be posted didn't necessarily come from the subject of the investigation. No, so, right. Well, yeah. I, you, you can swipe this term. I've used it before uh, with my business, and we can talk about business a little bit. Uh, but I like to use the term uh, microchips and shoe leather. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's actually pretty good. <laughs> I thought you can you can swipe it, you can borrow it. I can swipe that. <laughs> I'll let you take it. You know, you're uh, on the other side. That's a good term. That's a, you know, good analogy. Yeah, I use it. I, I've used it for a couple of my websites. You know, combining microchips and shoe leather. John Hoda. You know, yeah, you like my radio voice there too. I yeah, good. But uh, anyhow, um, so but you touched on this a little bit. You touched you touched on training. So let's talk about your life because you mentioned when we were before we got on air uh, about spending a lot of time on the road. So why don't you tell me about how your how your world has morphed into training now and and what what your average day looks like for you? Oh my gosh, my average day. I don't even know what my average day is unless I turn on my computer every day and look at my calendar. It's so chaotic. Um, I'm blessed. I'm been blessed, but I, it was funny because just a couple days ago, I got a breakdown from my main airline that I fly, and just this year, I have flown around the world, but all on the domesticated flights. I haven't gone international four and a half times. The amount of miles <laughs> that I have gone on has put me around the world four and a half times. Now, is that cumulative or just this year? Just this year. Oh my God! I, it, yeah. it feels like you know uh, the George Clooney, uh, Clooney minute uh, moment on the on in thin air in when, air. The, when yeah up in the air when the uh, airline pilot comes back with the uh, flight attendant and they they award him some kind of an award. Oh my God. You, so you've been around the world, but it's been 50,000 times to Dubuque. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's been crazy. I, I've been on the road pretty much uh, we were just talking about it, probably about 270, 75 days um, this mm. year. I was home really on the weekends and um, my focus really is law enforcement and military. And I do have some Fortune 500 companies that I go and I train um, executive training uh, Asset um, investigations or asset, uh, if you want to say risk mitigation, if we have an individual to travel to another country. Uh, but primarily, I would say about 80% of everything I do is training law enforcement, military intelligence, and my loyalty truly comes to them. And, um, you know, obviously, I'm never going to become rich from, uh, you know, contracts for the military or law enforcement. But I, I, you know, I love my military people and I love my law enforcement people. And so that's really what I focus on over the last few years. So, um, looking it's, at it's, a, it's an interesting vertical because you know normally I, I just kind of break down things into you know professional to professional, business to consumer, business to business. But you're a uh, an expert to government uh, or yeah. governmental agencies. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I've been the training with the FBI and Secret Service has gone through my trainings. Um, NSA has gone through my training. Uh, FBI has gone through my trainings. Uh, it, I've been blessed. I truly, truly have. And I would do anything. I really, honestly, would for for these guys. They, you know, they put their life on the line every single day. And uh, we're truly blessed to have people like that that want to do it, regardless of what people's opinions are. But so I. Oh no! no I, I mean, uh, listen. Um, I, I'm I'm not thinking at all about um, the intrusiveness into one's personal life when when uh, it. It comes down to uh, 
um, the ability of our our government uh, uh, to be able to protect our yep. our national interests. And you know, uh, I know somebody's talking about creating a space force, and I'm not going to go there. But uh, the real battle <laughs> the real battle isn't going to be between the, you know the rings of uh, Saturn. The real battle is is uh, in the 5G world that's about to start. Oh so, goodness. Yeah, that five you know. world is, is going to change a lot of things, even in, in the sense of investigation, um, mm-hmm. really the law enforcement. And I was just, it's interesting that you brought that up, John. I was in a class recently. The instructor was speaking before I was. I was going to be the next presenter. And he was talking about 5G. And he was talking about how many devices currently could be within a one-kilometer area. And if I quote this wrong, I apologize. Um, but he was saying it was approximately 60,000, I believe, in like in a one-kilometer area. Whereas when 5G is available, you can have one million connected devices within that one-kilometer. Again, if those those statistics are wrong, I apologize if that's what he had said in class. And I was thinking to myself, can you imagine, can you just imagine trying to identify a specific device? And let's say we have a homicide and we have geofencing warrant capability now where you can, uh, you know, you can ask Google for, you, you present a warrant, obviously, to Google for, for devices identified within that area. And I can't even imagine what it's going to be like when it's a 5G thing, the, the amount of connect devices that's going to happen. Mm. So it will change the way that investigations will, will be handled, I guess. So I like looking backwards. I like looking forwards. And, and that's the neat thing about the work that we do. Uh, it's that anybody thinks that um, private investigations or um, the type of work that you do, it, which is, you know, falls under the auspices of, you know, investigations, is going to go away. You know, it's going to go the way of the buggy whip maker uh, with the advent of the automobile. They're sorely mistaken. I think uh, uh, a lot more um, opportunity is going to go that way. I'm one of the examples I'll use is uh, personal injury attorneys, you know, kind of secretly wondering if driverless cars are going to uh, you know, take away all the automobile accidents. And my answer to that is no, it's going to just make, you're, you're just going to have to be a much smarter attorney. And with the new things that will come as a result of driverless cars, that's going to be a whole new type of, uh, not law, but uh, you're going to be looking at liability with a much different lens than you presently are. So, I mean, okay. that's just one example, you know, so. Well, and look at everything. I mean, it, for workman's comp even. Um, I can't remember where I was the other day and they had robotic cleaning systems now. Instead of having somebody go through, it was, I was Christmas shopping, and instead of somebody, you know, walking through with a broom, mm-hmm. they had a robotic cleaning systems that were going through the stores as people were shopping. So, you know, now you take away a certain amount of workman's comp liability or if you have an investigator who deals in workman's comp, you know, issues or, you know, somebody who slips and falls. Well, now we have robotic issues. You know, did that person, that robot, hit an individual in the store? You know, it, it's going to be, like you said, it's going to change everything. Right. So, I mean, the world that we're moving into, um, you know, some people that might might want to think of uh, private investigations as a retirement job from what they used to do and applying what they used to do to what uh, to what they can do now in investigations, they might have difficulty with adapting to the new world as we're moving forward. I mean, um, obviously, uh, OSINT, as you said, you know, open source intelligence gathering, uh, yeah. social media. Uh, there's a lot of things that if you retired from a police 
department 10 or 15 years ago. And that was before um, social media came on like it has and, and really before uh, big and, and big data. Oh, my God. We're not even talking about just regular data, just big data. Um, you're going to be sorely left behind unless you upskill your skills in your new job. So maybe that's going to change, I think, for some people. Yeah, thinking well, I that they're going to... I, I would say that, too, because there's a lot of officers that will reach out to me. Obviously, you know, I'm training anywhere from 500 to 2,000 officers a month. And so they'll reach out because they want to retire and have they get in the Department of Investigation field. And what I would try to explain to all of them is, and, and you know this as well, coming from being a uh, law enforcement, is it's a different world. It truly is. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of crossover. But, you know, what we could do on private investigative side compared to what they can do sometimes on a law enforcement side does have a different aspect to it. You know, the ability behind things that we can do. And um, I just had a couple of military intelligence officers in a class of mine, and uh, they're still reserved and they're still currently active. And, and you know, after my class, I did a two-day class. They came up and they were like, holy crap, you know, we didn't know a lot of the stuff that's out there because what they're being trained is completely different, obviously. And so they were, you know, we were kind of going back and forth and I was like, holy crap, I didn't know you could do that. And so it was really interesting on just sitting down and seeing what one side can do and what the other side can do. Because mm -hmm. it is different. there's a lot of crossover, but there is very specific differences. Oh, but the cross-fertilization opportunity there is just immense. And I think that's a great thing. Not only are you the teacher, but you're the student. Oh, absolutely. I always tell everybody, I learn from my students as much as they learn from me, truly. Mm -hmm. So some of the stories you tell, they say, oh, well, how about this? And then, they, then you learn something new from what they're saying. And, and, it's a, oh, and, and, and done in the, in the learning environment, that you, you know, such as a trainer, uh, it's important. So you've really, you've really taken your investigative skills, and now, and, but you've also had to learn how to become a trainer as well as, and a presenter. So those are some things that you've had to, to learn. And so can you talk about that a little bit? It's a little different. It's a little different than day-to-day -day stuff that we normally see. Um, the thing about the day-to-day -day stuff is... You know, I think it really keeps you on top of things, definitely. Um, me moving from investigations after, you know, 20, 25 years um, and going strictly into uh, pretty much just instruction, I do do a certain amount of investigation, but instruction is my, my big thing now. It, it, to me, is more enjoyable. I have that one-on-one -on -one effect now. I have, you know, I'm looking at a few of people that I'm training and, you know, to do things that I've been doing for years and years and years. And you kind of see the light go on their eyes, you know, like, oh, I didn't know you can do that. Or, oh, my God, that is so cool. And I just have that personality anyways that I love being around people and when I was doing investigations you know and you know how it is too um, unless you're in an office and you have a bunch of people as employed for you a lot of investigators such as me you know we worked from our house right and so mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot of that that connection there wasn't a lot of that social um, you know experience that you have when you work in a big company and right. so yeah and, and I did that and, and, I was, and, and again I, I always say I've been very very blessed now I had both my boys I never really you know had to put them in daycare I was you know able to be a stay at home mom um, you know something that was really incredibly important for me, but in that same sense, now having the opportunity to travel like I do and train, and especially training the people. If you would have taken me back to 18 years old and then asked me where I'd be in life, I would have never said it's where I am today. That I'd be working with the FBI, that I'd be working with Homeland Security. That would have never been anything that would have been a possibility in my 18 year old brain. And now mm. I sit here, you know, and I think, holy crap, it's it's been an awesome life. It's been an awesome investigative life. And um, so I really enjoy the presentation because I do get to meet people. I get to, you know, travel all over the place. And it, it's just been, it's been good. Mm. So when I was uh, my 18 year old self, I, I, I had to come to the uh, realization that I couldn't be a, a uh, professional baseball player. And, <laughs> and, and, and uh, I think the 
movie, uh, Trouble with the Curve, could have been written for me. But uh, not not that I was a, uh, a horse's ass baseball player. No, I, I, just, I, I just had trouble hitting the curve, but that's not important. But at 18, uh, I realized that I, I couldn't live my dream. And one of the aptitude tests I took was it said that I would be a good teacher. And I said, oh, yeah, right. Anyhow. But at the time, I had my heart set on becoming a police officer and I wanted to become a detective. And of course, you know, 40 some years later, um, you know, that's kind of behind me. And now, now that I'm coaching uh, PIs in how to be better at business, I'm thinking back, well, geez, those, those initial <laughs> like aptitude tests said I was yeah. a teacher and all along. I had that DNA in me. And so did you did you have any aptitude testing that said that you would be in a training or a teaching or in a, uh, in yeah, a it's funny. Um, yes, I did. I had okay. to do a bunch of things um, for a specific agency once, and mine came back that it would, I would be obviously in an investigative, you know, positioning. That that's what I really, really scored high on. Um, but the other one did come back that it is a school teacher or something like that. I can't remember um, educational provider or whatever the the, the bracket was. But yeah, it, 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 and, and it's funny because like you said, I never in a million years would have thought this is what I would have been doing. You know, even when mm-hmm. I was in Chris, uh, private investigation, even 20 years ago, I would have never thought that I'd be an instructor looking at a massive crowd of. You you know, like one of my classes with 2,000 people. And yeah, so it's, wow. it's funny now. I think that we have that predetermined, maybe little, you know, personality trait in the beginning that kind of matures as long as, you know, as well as we're maturing. And, and, and we come back to that, maybe, it, it, you know, finding our true north across in our journey uh, is such as that it is. Now, uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, I still get excited about a case, you know, that I'm working on, you know, I'm on oh, yeah. the case, but, and I'm sure you still get excited every once in a while about, you know, figuring this thing out or figuring that out and getting playing oh, with the newest toys and trying to get, get it done. And I do too, don't get me wrong. But, uh, but now I think finding the true north for both of us is that we, uh, we're, we're now living what we are destined to be and in, in what we're doing. And Thank I find you. that, I find that to be, uh, much more resonant with me, and I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure talking to you, you feel it more resonant with you because otherwise, you wouldn't be on the road 270 days a year if it wasn't for um, if it wasn't for that. And by the way, can I ask you what airlines it was? Do you mind me asking, or is that a, a, a is that a, oh, no, a security American. question? American, just like George Clooney. Oh man! Yeah, and, 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 yeah, because yeah, it's a hub out here in Phoenix. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. I thought Frontier. I thought Frontier was a hub, or is, is that a hub oh, too? No, for no. A, I think I've flown Frontier maybe once or twice in my entire life. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, I I didn't mind asking. I mean, because I have my uh, city card to American too, so I get my American miles as well when I travel. So, oh yeah, I have yeah. so many miles crazy right now. So I know short term you probably got a lot of uh, a lot of training gigs uh, baked in, but uh, last time I met you, we were down in Charlotte where we were receiving training. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, we yeah. were down there for an IntelliNet con. Yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about how the the um, the lonely investigator can uh, make a lot of contacts and network and learn a lot of things at, at, uh, at private investigator conferences. You want to talk about that a little bit? Give that a little plug? Yeah, sure. I, I, you know, and it's funny because that is one of the things that I do point out to some of the younger, you know, individuals that come into, and when I say younger, I don't mean by age, younger as in experience of investigator. Yeah. And I always say networking truly is, I think, one of the number one way, ways of saying a good investigator because it's, you know, it, I always say, and I, there was a, a president who said it, and I, and I hate to say who president was, but I might be wrong, but I remember a president saying, the best leader is not the leader who thinks he knows everything. It's the leader who surrounds himself with the people who do. And um, and that's a generalization of the statement, but that's truly what I think it is. None of us can be good at everything. And so we can go through as many trainings as you want. You can throw me through a surveillance class 10 times, and I'm not going to be as good as 
as, as, a, as somebody who really does that for a living. Mm-hmm. And so the networking portion is, I think, one of the most important things. And John, you know it as well as I do. You can pick up the phone at any time with the types of associations that we're associated to, such as uh, Intellinet you just brought up. We mm-hmm. have members all over the world. And so mm-hmm. we're able to pick up that phone and reach out and get, you know, a question answered or get somebody to do, uh, you know, a research on a case that we're working. But that networking part, I think, as an investigator, is probably one of the best things that you can have in your arsenal of providing your client the best case possible. Because networking, I love it in the sense you just meet new people, right? And I'm a people mm-hmm. person. But it's also when you start meeting people from other parts of the world, you realize what you can and can't do there too. And um, it's just an interesting way of staying on top of things and the opportunity of utilizing somebody else's skill set that I can honestly say I don't have. So I do think PCI associations, um, regardless if you're not part of IntelliNet or if you're, there's NALI, there's EII, there's all of them that are out there. You Plus know. the state associations are getting much more robust too. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, they are. I mean, look at Tally, Cali, and Fally. I mean, I, mean, I know that's uh, Tally, Texas, Cali, yeah. uh, California, Fally, Florida. The three of them uh, put on some monster conferences. And then there's also the super conference that uh, Jimmy Besson puts on, who oh, every absolutely. other year. I love yeah. those. I mean, one of my very favorite super conferences, if you remember, it was in 2005 in Vegas. Yes. That was yes. a long time ago, but that, I think, was my favorite super conference ever. I do. I remember that. Long time ago. Oh, my. But some of the things that I, I hear investigators say, oh, I can't afford to go. I can't afford to be away from my office. I can't bill the hours. And I tell them un- unabashedly that I will go to a conference and I will meet new people and I will learn something new. And I will also bring something back to an existing case that I can apply to an existing case that will earn me more money and will usually earn me back what I paid for the conference. And then other skill sets that I learned or learned about make me more money in the future so that um, like um, cell phone extraction data, uh, bug sweeping. These are things that, you know, if you don't know the people who do it, then you don't know anything about it and you can't offer that as a service. Now you can add cell phone extraction and bug sweep to your website as being services that you offer. And because you're one phone call away from a guy that's a bug sweeper or a guy that's a, or a person that does uh, cell phone extraction. So, I mean, there's something that you learn at the conferences that now you become a more robust investigator, not because you're getting better at it, because you're just one phone call away from the person it is. So, oh, yeah. I completely agree with you, John. I actually yeah. just had that same conversation with somebody recently, um, a couple weeks ago at a conference, and uh, I told him, it was more of a law enforcement thing, but I had told him about it, and he's like, yeah, I just I just don't think that's going to be worth my time. I'm like, you are absolutely crazy if you think that. Mm-hmm. And I know it costs money, just like you said, to go, but mm-hmm. every single time, no matter what conference I've been at, I have walked away with something that I didn't know, or somebody that I knew that I could reach out to. So I Totally and absolutely agree with you on that. No, I was I was late coming to the IntelliNet conference, not by choice. Uh, I was I, I still uh, I had a subpoena thrown at me at the last minute. Luckily, I was able to change my flight without much of a penalty and cancel a hotel room. So I came and I spent two out of the three nights there, you know, down there at the Charlotte uh, conference. But I didn't miss um, a, uh, a class that was presented by Frank D'Andrea on uh, police use of force and what goes on in yeah. a, a use of force situation. Now, Frank was on my uh, podcast shortly afterward. But here's a situation where I looked at the um, 
uh, class schedule for the three days. And, you know, I, I, I looked at this and I looked at that and I said, oh, I don't know, maybe, oh, that'll be interesting. Yeah, maybe I should go to that. And I got to tell you, I wasn't, a, I didn't think that I'd have much use uh, for Frank's class. Completely blew me away. Completely changed my attitude about that. Now, does that make me a use of force expert in uh, this? No, but I can certainly talk to the lawyers in my state that do police use of force and say, hey, wait a minute, before you go running off and think that this is a situation, maybe you ought to consider this. And here's the guy I can hook you up with. Now, am I going to be making a, a ton of money on that? No. Am I helping lawyers that I work with in my community by hooking them up, up to a, an expert like Frank? Yes. And to me, um, that makes it makes it all worthwhile because I'm actually helping my clientele out because even though I'm not the guy doing the boots on the ground, there's somebody else out there that I know that can. So I use that as an example. I hope I didn't... Uh, is that a good way of explaining what you were trying to say as well, too? Yeah, I, it's exactly true. It's even, for instance, um, same same conference you're talking about, uh, Dan Loper uh, was giving a presentation about computer forensics. And some of the things that he had mentioned that, you know, he was capable of doing, I didn't even realize could be done. And just recently, I was contacted by an insurance company that needed um, some help that, you know, I've worked with in the past. And it was something I couldn't do, but I knew exactly who to go to. And, and it was the question, the exact thing that he had brought up in the class that I didn't even know was possible. Right. So I, it is. I, I agree with you. Networking and going to these trainings, even if you don't, as an investigator, use it yourself. You at least will make your client happy and come back to you because you knew exactly where to go and who to speak to. Amen. So um, I know you're kind of, you know, your, your clientele is sort of uh, military and government and spooks, but if, if any of my listeners had a question, is there a way they can reach you or do they have to go through like a cutout, you know, on, a, on the London Bridge with an umbrella? <laughs> they should all have code names. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, absolutely. They can reach out to me. I still do a lot of training with private investigators too. I do. Um, okay. it, it just is that primor- primarily it is law enforcement based, but no, I do love my PI injury. I will always be there for my PI industry and they could reach out to me anytime. My email address is Michelle with one L at JAG Investigations with an S dot com. So Michelle at JAG Investigations dot com and I would be more than happy to answer any questions. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I know I've been wanting to have you on for a while. I know you were busy and uh, when we got a chance to talk down there in uh, Charlotte, I, I just wanted to have you on and it was just a matter oh, of getting time that. to do it. So, Oh, I hadn't forgotten. I said, oh, you're going to come on my podcast. And you said, yes, I want to come on your podcast. So, uh, <laughs> we just had just, to go through a month of trying to figure out which one to make it work. Uh, that's it, but we did, and I'm glad we did. We did. So uh, I, I want to thank you very much for coming on. I certainly appreciate it. And uh, again, thank you so much, Michelle. Oh, my gosh, thank you. And I wish you and all the listeners a very happy new year, Don. All right, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is Max Wirestone. Max is the writer of the Dahlia Moss Mystery Series. He's also a librarian by day, a dad by night, and a ne'er-do-well in most of the times in between. He lives in Kansas with his husband, son, and altogether too many books. We explore his mysteries set in the gaming community, as well as the four queens of crime, Agatha Christie, Nayo Marsh, Dorothy Sayers, and Marjorie Allingham. Looking forward to this interview. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to the website and click on our podcast page. There you'll find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do. 
and they are available to you free as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes in a book titled Mugshots, My Favorite Detective Stories. Now here's my ask. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by the stories today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to the iTunes website and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please contact me through the website, www.johnhoda.com, J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.